pleasure of introducing my good friend, Zach Nadu denning He is serving right now at uh, Green Valley Crossing in Putnam. He serves as the ministry intern there. And uh, he did send me a little bio that I wanted to share with you. I want to encourage you after the service to connect with Zach and to hear some more of his story and his passion and what the Lord's doing in his life. But uh, Zach Denning, he's ministry intern at Green Valley Crossing. He's currently being trained in church planting and hopes to be used to plant churches in the Wyndham County. Before joining uh, Green Valley Crossing, Zach was saved in college. He became a Christian through a student ministry. He was soon after baptized and went on his first missions trip as a new believer, and God gave him a heart for the lost. He returned home and joined Grace Harbor Church in Providence, Rhode Island, where he quickly began seeking discipleship and grew in his faith. He began leading Bible studies and preaching, and he returned to Connecticut in 2017 and has been serving at Green Valley Crossing Center, yeah, Center, whatever they are, (laughs) since. Uh, So we want to encourage you, let's warmly welcome Zach as he comes to preach the word. Uh, I'm thankful for this brother, for his faithfulness and his passion to see new churches started in our area. So, welcome, Zach. Good morning. It is uh, really exciting uh, for me to be here. This is my first time here. Uh, most of you probably realize that. Uh, I was just, as uh, Pastor Jordan was praying, I was just thinking about, he was praying about Grace Harbor, Green Valley Crossing, the church in the area, um, and it's just amazing to me that I've been able to experience that uh, through preaching at different churches, being discipled by different pastors in, in different seasons of my life, and uh, just to be reminded of the, of the work that God's doing throughout all of New England, and uh, especially in Connecticut. And for me to be up here uh, being able to serve you all in this way uh, and bring a message to you uh, that God says uh, is, is to equip you to work in that work with us is just really exciting uh, and an honor. And I say that all to say that um, none of this is because of what uh, Pastor Kevin McKay and Travis are doing in, in Grace Harbor. It's not because of what Pastor Jordan is doing here. Uh, it's what God is doing through all of them and through me now and hopefully through all of you. And so, uh, because it's God's work, uh, we need to go and pray to him. So I'm going to pray again uh, quickly before I, I uh, preach to you so that, um, so that I can have confidence that it's not in me, but it's in, in his blessing that, that you hear this word. So I'll pray for that. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to preach to these people, God, to be part of your work in this church and in this community uh, and in Connecticut, Lord. We know, God, that this is your word, that it is spoken from you, and it is uh, profitable for equipping and for reproof and correction. And God, we pray that by your spirit those things would happen today, Lord, that your saints would be equipped and ready for every good work, and that you would be glorified, God. Bless this message, Lord. Um, Bless the words that come out of my mouth, that they would be your words and not mine, and that they would be uh, spoken in truth and in love, God, and that you would use it for your glory and for the boning up of your church. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, there's a few verses I'm just going to rattle off here, uh, and just raise your hand if you heard them before. So, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Okay, does anybody know where that's from? Jeremiah 29:11. right. So, next one, I can do all things through Christ. Right, okay, good, we're on a roll here. Ask and you shall receive. Good, so... 
almost everybody, every, every verse so far. Last one. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. All right. So we, we are familiar with those verses, right? We probably know what the reference is for that, Jeremiah 29, 11, all that. Uh, and, and you could probably point out where they are, but do we know the surrounding verses in context? If those of you who raise your hand, if I said, okay, finish Jeremiah 29, the rest of that passage, the rest of that paragraph, the rest of that chapter, how many of you could go on to, to finish that? How many of you could go on to finish, I can do all things through Christ, and then finish the rest of that passage? Or even uh, reference out of memory the verses before that. So there's no doubt these verses are familiar to us, but chances are we might not actually understand the context that they're in. And, and a lot of the times you might see these things posted on Facebook or decoratively painted and hung on somebody's wall or tattooed somewhere, maybe on somebody's hand or foot or something like that with some prayer beads. And those might be great reminders to us of God's word that he has promises for his people, that he is faithful and all these things. Uh, but if we don't actually know the context of these verses, it's very easy to misunderstand them. Right, so if we don't understand that in Jeremiah, God is speaking through him to Israel and the promises that he has pointing them forward to something greater. It's not just their individual lives that he has a plan for, but the nation as a whole, his people as a whole. If we don't remember that these verses point to something greater, then we often will miss the point and we'll really be left empty and searching for something that we have the answers to, but we're not really looking in the right spot. As a culture in the church and in America in general, I think we have a tendency to highlight these verses or, or mark them down or, as I mentioned, put them up on Facebook. But we often don't understand the context, and so we're left to quote them and, and hold on to them as things that might give us hope in the moment or might encourage us when times are hard. But if we don't look to Christ, the one who they, they really point to, we're going to be left empty and wanting and unsatisfied. Now, I say this all not to guilt you or, or tell you you need to memorize more scripture or something like that, uh, but to get to the heart of the matter, which is what we're going to read about today in Mark 12. Without proper understanding, we're left in the same place as the Sadducees that we read about. They go to Jesus, and they ask him a question, and they reference these verses, but Jesus tells them they don't understand scripture. And because of that, they don't understand the power of God. So to give you a little bit of context before we jump in, uh, the Sadducees were a minority Jewish sect, so they're this religious group that uh, claims to be Jewish, but they hold tightly to the five uh, first books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. So uh, they're, they're very reverent for the laws and the way things should be, the ceremonies of things, but there was a lack of a heartfelt love and understanding uh, to why they should follow those laws and why they should do what they're doing. And so they tried to hold firm to that power and authority that they had, based off of the law and the punishments associated with those laws. And so here, as we pick up the text, they're going to Jesus and trying to uh, ask him this question, not because they genuinely want to learn the answer, but because they're trying to trap him and uh, really undermine his authority and undermine his teaching. So if Jesus failed to answer these questions, it would, he would either have to secede and say that, yes, your ways are better than mine, or, worst case scenario, his ministry falls apart altogether because he doesn't understand scripture. So how can he teach? So the Sadducees are really seeking to trap Jesus here, more so than know the scriptures, and Jesus goes to the heart of the matter and corrects them on that. So for our outline this morning, that is our two points. Know the scriptures, 
and know the power of God, the two things Jesus says. So if, you're, uh, if you've got a pen and a notepad, it would be really helpful for you to take notes this morning. We're going to look a little bit in the Old Testament, uh, look at some of the passages that the Sadducees reference and that Jesus references, uh, and dig into those a bit to understand why Jesus says what he says. So uh, again, the two points are know the scriptures and know the power of God. So let's read Mark 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if any, any man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So the Sadducees, like the Pharisees and scribes in the surrounding passages, are going to Jesus seeking uh, to trap him, asking him a sort of crazy scenario question. Seven brothers, they all try to have her as a wife and carry on this family line, and they all fail. You know, what happens then? And so if Jesus answers that the first brother would have her in the resurrection and that marriage uh, would continue, then by saying that, he's taking away the validation of the next marriages that happened. If Jesus says that the second brother, third brother, or fifth brother, or whatever, that marriage is valid, then he's saying the first marriages before that were invalid. And if Jesus says that, well, in the resurrection they all have her as a wife, then here's a woman with a harem of husbands, and he's saying that polygamy is tolerated in heaven. So no matter how he answers the question, the Sadducees think, He's going to be wrong. We got him. But Jesus, no doubt, surprises them by his answer. He says that none of them will be married. He doesn't even really entertain the question, but directs it back at them and says, this this is why you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. They don't understand the very scriptures that they hold so firmly to, that their whole faith is built upon. So we're going to take a look back at the passage that uh, the Sadducees are referencing. And we're going to do a little bit digging and just see how uh, the Sadducees understood this text and how Jesus is sort of reframing their mind and how it should properly be understood. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 25.5, just for a few minutes. I'll give you a second to get there. Deuteronomy 25.5. So a little bit of background about this. Moses... Uh, recorded this law, and uh, it's called the uh, Leverite marriage, or the law for the Leverite marriage, and Leverite uh, is a, a word uh, in Latin meaning brother-in-law, so it's a law about brother-in-laws carrying on uh, their family line. So in verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger, so the widow can't go on and marry a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed 
the family name of his, dad, of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duties of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Sounds extreme, uh, and it sounds a little bit uh, rough, like a rough response for not wanting to be married to somebody. Um, But if we are to understand why this is important, then the response that the woman has makes a lot of sense. So I'll give you a little bit of backstory. You don't have to follow along because I'm going to be sort of skipping through Genesis a little bit. In Genesis 3, we know the fall happens, right? God creates man and woman. They're perfect and living in harmony with God. And then they uh, disobey God and sin. And sin corrupts God's creation. But uh, God responds with a promised blessing. He says, The offspring of the woman will crush his enemy beneath his heel. And so Adam and Eve go on to multiply, hoping to eventually have a child that will be that promised offspring. And eventually God's people flourish, and then Abraham comes along. About a third of the way through Genesis, we see Abraham, and God's making promises to him and a covenant with him. And then he has a son, Isaac, this promised son, he hopes. And then God uh, tells him to sacrifice Isaac, and uh, then God uh, spares Isaac and, and puts in a substitution for him. And then Isaac goes on, and he has children, and eventually down the line we see God continuing this covenant with Jacob. And so this idea of perpetuating God's people, the family line, is continuing so that eventually the promised Savior will be born. And so the reason this law is important is because it's uh, perpetuating the line that God has established, the line that God promised a Savior through. And interestingly enough, we see a... Uh, version of this law in the book of Ruth. So in Ruth, it appears that the law has been extended to uh, incorporate the nearest kinsman. So even uh, though she might not have a brother-in-law or something like that, she goes on to find the nearest relative. And by the end of Ruth, in chapter 4, we see that uh, she marries a man named Boaz, and they have a child together, and that child's name is Obed. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. King David. And then God makes a covenant with David and says, through you I will provide a king, and his throne shall last for eternity. And if you follow that genealogy of David, you get to Mary and Joseph, the mother and earthly father of Jesus. And so we see that this law that the Sadducees are bringing up to Jesus, this very law that the Sadducees are questioning Jesus about, has already been fulfilled. The law that they're asking Jesus about is fulfilled not just for them, but right in front of them. The reason that law exists is standing before them, and they're asking him to his face, hey, if if a man has a wife and then he dies and this and that, and Jesus is like, that law is fulfilled, I'm right here. How can you be missing this? Jesus is quick to point out it's because they don't understand the very question that they're asking. They don't understand the law that they're referring to. 
The whole point is right in front of them. Let me give you this analogy. One day I was on the phone with my friend, so I had my cell phone in my hand, talking to him. He asked me a question, and I was like, oh, I, you know, I got a phone. I have technology and the internet. I'll just Google that real quick. So I'm like walking around the house. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? Hang on, man. I'll get to you in a second. Can't find my phone anywhere. I looked in my bedroom, looked in the living room, even went to the bathroom, and then I sat there and I realized I'm talking on my, on my phone right now. And thankfully there was nobody around, but like that, it was pretty embarrassing. And to a much higher and more significant degree, that's exactly what's happening to the Sadducees here. Imagine standing in front of Jesus and then asking him, hey, uh, you know the Old Testament, there's this Messiah that's promised. Do you know who that is? Like, I've been looking for this guy everywhere. Uh, we have all these laws that show us that we're not good enough and we need a savior, and I'm really looking for him. I just don't know where he is. And you're staring Jesus right in the face and wondering where your Messiah is. And it sounds ridiculous. It really does. But if we really take a second and look at our lives, we do that almost weekly, if not daily. No doubt, all of us have gone through struggles at, at times, hard times, difficult decisions. Maybe you have a job somewhere that's, that's calling you to move. Maybe uh, there's somebody that passed away and you're wrestling with that. Maybe it seems like everything in your life is going wrong and you don't know why. And you're looking for everywhere. You're looking everywhere for the answers. You're asking friends for help. You're asking people for prayer. But you're not actually turning to the Bible. You're not opening the Bible and saying, God, what does this mean? What, what should I do? What are the answers? Where should I go from here? We need to know the scriptures. We see the, the fault of the Sadducees is that Jesus says that they don't understand the scriptures. They don't understand that Jesus is right in front of them, the very thing that their laws point to. If we don't know the scriptures, then we don't see God's blessing. We're not looking for God's blessing. We're not aware of it happening because we don't know what, what it is. So for us as Christians, this is significant because it, it guides us and helps us. But for those of you who might be here and who might not be a Christian, who might say that you don't believe these things, you need to know that the scriptures are just as important for you as they are for somebody who does believe. It's just as important to know what you don't believe as it is to know what you do believe. The Sadducees knew the scriptures but didn't understand them, and they, and they still didn't believe. In their ignorance of not knowing, they missed out on the greatest gift in history that was right before their eyes. The gift that God had promised from the beginning that through his people the whole earth will be blessed, through those covenants that I mentioned of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, that he would bless them with a son who would save his people. God was born in the form of man, holy and perfect, the only one who could live the perfect life that we are called to live, but fail. He knew the struggles and temptations as a man. We read that verse in Hebrews this morning that talks about how he can sympathize with us because he's known all the things that we have go, go through. He knows the temptations of sin, but he's overcome them. So he, he knows that the, the flaws of man, the desires of the flesh, but he overcomes them, overcomes sin, because he's God. He lived the life that we're called to, holy and righteous, but he wasn't rewarded for it, not immediately. Instead, he was murdered, beat, and nailed to a cross, and he died as a sacrifice for us, the ones who don't deserve it. Jesus, the perfect, holy Son of God, the one that was promised, took the punishment that we deserve. He paid for our sin. He took the nakedness and shame that we read about in Adam and Eve and the, 
the beginning of Genesis. He took the sins of, uh, of all his people through the Old Testament, of all of us today. He took that guilt and shame, and he owned it. He purchased it on the cross so that we could be like him and through believing in him, turn away from our sins so that we could accept that gift that Jesus paid for, his righteousness, that we can be like him and be children of God. But nobody can know that. Those of us who are here and who are Christians couldn't know that if we didn't at least hear or read the word. And it's so important to know scripture. Whether you choose to believe it or not, if you are choosing not to believe it, you need to at least know what you're choosing not to believe. You need to at least know the blessing that you're, you're opting out of. You'd be wise to read it for yourself and make your own informed decision. But don't let the ignorance of, of not reading, of not seeking to understand, be the reason you miss out on the blessing. If you're going to choose not to believe, at least know why. Jesus goes on to tell them that not only do they not understand the scripture, but because of that they fail to understand the big picture. Not only is the law fulfilled in Christ, the very guy that is standing there before them, the very one that they are questioning, but that means that there will be no need for marriage in heaven. Right? So if, if the law to perpetuate the family line so that the promised Savior could be born has been fulfilled, and that through Christ, that promised Savior, God is calling people to him and saving them and building up his kingdom, then in the resurrection, the work will be completed. There will be no more need for marriage. God's people would have multiplied, the Savior arrived, the line of David established for eternity in Christ, and the promise of God fulfilled through him, and through, all, and through him all the nations would be blessed. His kingdom would be built, his people all together, the multiplying and redeeming of his people completed. The error is in the understanding of scriptures not only leads them to an incorrect theology of marriage, but also an incorrect understanding of God's power and an incorrect understanding of, of heaven. Jesus is quick to point out the connection between the two. He says, this is, is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? He sees them as tightly connected. So this leads us to our second point, knowing the power of God. By failing to understand the scriptures, we fail to understand who God is, really. And if we, understand, if we don't understand who God is, who the scriptures tell us he is, this is his word after all, then we don't know what he can do, what his characteristics are, and we don't know his power. In verses 26 and 27, it says, As for the dead being raised, you ha have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I find it very interesting that these Sadducees, these men, held so tightly to the Pentateuch, and then Jesus says to them, have you not read when Moses, you know, the burning bush, have you not read that passage? Of course they've read it, right? These people have studied those passages and hold so firmly to them. But Jesus isn't asking them simply, have you read it? He's pointing out to the fact that they don't understand it. And that sort of brings me back to the introduction, those verses that I've referenced that we have all read at some point. We all, all know them well. But do we actually take the time to dig deep and understand them? 
Again, it's not bad to have those verses written down somewhere or highlight them in, the, in your Bible and go back to them for encouragement. But we need to understand the depth of what's being said when we have a verse that we save or write down somewhere. We need to understand that it's pointing to something greater. And in this case, God is saying it's, it's pointing to God. Jesus is saying it's pointing to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's revealing something about who he is. Right? These verses aren't for us individually. These verses are for us to grow closer to God. So we need to understand Scripture to understand who God is. So in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see uh, this passage that Jesus references. Uh, we see God come in the form of a burning bush, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus points out the language that God is using. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, to this day, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a present tense statement. But how can God say that if these men have gone and, and been buried? Jesus is making that exact point. Long after the forefathers of Moses has been buried, God, in fact, still is their God. So that must say something about those men. Jesus follows that up to make the point. And he says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So not only is, is God still the same God, but God is God of the living, meaning those who have perished but lived faithfully in, in the hope of the promised Savior are with God. He's not only fulfilled the, the promise of giving them a Savior, but also the promise of redeeming them through that Savior, meaning that they are dwelling with him. Jesus is showing the Sadducees here the logic of the scripture, that if they just take the time to read it and truly understand it, that God has fulfilled his promises, and that God is trustworthy, and that God is powerful. In regards to all this, Matthew Henry comments, the same power that made soul and body and preserved them while they were together can preserve the body safe and the soul active when they are parted, and can unite them together again for behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened. This is what we see in Hebrews as well. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about, or the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, it talks about this uh, great cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews is saying, those men who have been faithful and passed on before us are with God, waiting for the resurrection, when we can all be joined together. Hebrews 12 also tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He went to the cross with the joy that was set before him, the joy of redeeming his people, of calling them back to him. And he knew that in his death, many would follow him and be like him. But just like him, they would also be raised from the dead. The God that went to the cross conquered sin. He went to the grave, he conquered death, and he was raised again and ascended to heaven. Jesus is saying the living God, the one that raised from the dead, is also God of the living. Just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so many who lived like them, who lived before us, were redeemed through their faith in Christ, we too can have the same assurance that through Christ we will also have life, even after death. And one day we'll be made new, as Jesus says, like the angels in heaven will be with God to enjoy God and dwell with him forever. 
Often, though, we forget these promises. We forget that these scriptures aren't only just promises, but remind us of the power of God. If we don't know the word and the power of God, we'll be quick to ask questions like the Sadducees. We'll be quick to uh, propose ideas and things, but we'll be missing out on the answers that are right in front of us. If we're not keeping our eyes on the scriptures and then looking for the answers, then we're going to be missing out when the answers come right up to us. Oftentimes we'll look for things of momentary relief. We'll look for uh, maybe somebody to talk to that will say it's going to be okay, or, or maybe we'll pick a verse out of context and uh, use it as a reminder. You know, everything's going to be all right. God has a plan for me. Those things might be true, but if we're not looking to what that plan is and who is providing it and how he's providing it, then we're not going to be ready when the answer is there. When we forget that God has the power to take us from death into eternal life to him, we begin to act like this life is all we have. We begin to act like this life is what we need to take hold of and make the most out of. As if we need to experience the pleasures of this life and all it has to offer before we're, before we're gone, so we don't miss out. Not only is God more powerful than that, but heaven is more satisfying than that. What ways are you looking for heavenly fulfillment in this life? What ways are you forgetting the power of God that he not only promises, but is able to raise us from the dead? When we have faith and joy and, looking, and we look forward to God raising us from the dead to endless life, we are in fact free to truly live this life as we're called to. Uh, growing up in high school, I had a lot of teachers who were like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what's your bucket list? What are, what are the things you want to do before you die or before you get old or before you retire? And they were always trying to cast this vision for, for what our future was going to be like, help us to think through that. And that in and of itself might not be a bad thing, but I think a lot of the times, even uh, within the church, we, we elevate these goals of life experiences over what heaven would be like, the, the experiences of this life over the experiences of heaven. I have a friend who likes to travel a lot, and uh, she's gone to Thailand and Argentina and all these places, and travel is not bad, but it could easily be a thing that we hold on to. I have to experience all the different places around the world. I have to experience all these different cultures and people and do all these things before I can't do that anymore before my body fails me, or before I die, or before I get uh, loaded down with student loans or a mortgage or things like that. But we're forgetting that this earth is all going to fade away. We're forgetting that this is all going to be done away and God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, that God has the power to do that, and that that is going to be much better than this one. I hope as we think through these things that uh, God helps us and reveals the ways that we are forgetting his power. Maybe this morning some of you uh, need to repent of greed and, and a, a love of money. Maybe you're valuing your bank account more than the treasures that Christ has purchased for you in heaven. Maybe it looks like spending as much time as you can to work and save up for that uh, perfect retirement. Maybe there's a lot of temptation for you in school or uh, with your friends. Whether their conversations are elevating drugs and uh, parting and those experiences and saying, you need to do this while you can, while you're young. Now's the time. Let's, let's go have fun. 
The enemy and the world like to feed us these lies that life experiences are to be valued and, and to be grabbed and, and, and taken while we can. And when we're raised to endless life to be with God and dwell with him for eternity in heaven, we're going to look back at those moments, at these pleasures in life, and they're going to look dull and boring and even repulsive. Maybe misunderstanding God's power and the promises that he has looks like being unfair to your spouse and expecting your heaven to be your marriage. Everything's going to be perfect once I'm married. We're never going to argue. Our kids are going to be great. We're going to have a nice house, and everything's going to be perfect. He's going to worship me and uh, cherish me and, and do as I tell him. Or she's going to cook dinner and do the dishes and take care of everything and the kids, and I'm just, it's going to be great. Marriage isn't like that. I'm not speaking from experience myself, but I've, I've seen a lot of married couples, and uh, that's not a marriage that God provides in this lifetime. The perfect marriage is the marriage of the church and, and Christ. And so if we're trying to take those expectations of, of perfection and bring them to our life now and try to grab onto these things in our life, we're, we're stealing away the blessings of heaven and trying to, to hold onto them now. But that's not what God promised, and that's not what God is calling us to. So I'd like us all to take a moment and consider the ways that we need to remember God's power, the ways that you need to remember God's power in your life, his promises in the scripture. Let's take a moment and bow our heads and ask God to help us to know his scripture and to know his power and to live in faith of those things. So take a minute and think about what God is revealing to you this morning. Think about the ways that you might be elevating promises of this world, desires of the flesh, and those things over what God has for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that uh, your word is all yours, God, all true, all from you, God, that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, there is nothing that is uh, contradictory. There is nothing that should be confusing, Lord, but if understood and, and read, God, by your Spirit, you will reveal your truth to us. God, that we could see your promises fulfilled, God, from the Old Testament when we see you promise a Savior, that we could see the fulfillment in Christ, Lord. We pray that we would remember that, that we would be mindful of the power that you have, to not only make promises and that authority that you have, God, but the power to fulfill them, God, the desire that you have and the, the will that you have to bless your people. God, may we not forget that you are calling us not only to be obedient to Christ and to have faith in him and worship him and enjoy the relationship that we have with you through him now in this life, God, but that we would also remember the power that you have to raise us from the dead at the end of this life and be with you. God, that when our soul is separated from our body, that we will be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those that you have uh, covenanted with and promised life with. God, that we would be mindful of that and it would shape our view of our life now, that it would put things into perspective, God, and that we would value our heavenly gifts more than the gifts that this earth and this world try to give us. God, that we would be gracious and patient to one another and not looking for perfection in somebody else, not looking for Christ uh, and the gifts that, that come through him in somebody else, God. We all fail. 
Help us to be gracious and merciful to one another. Lord, help us to not put unnecessary uh, expectations on a church or a pastor to be perfect and, uh, and holy all the time. God, you are the high priest. You are the perfecter of our faith. You are the one who is holy and perfect. You are the ultimate example. You are the great shepherd, God. Help us to look to you for those things, Lord. Help us to be gracious to our loved ones and our spouses, knowing that in no friendship or marriage or relationship will the other person be perfect. Help us to not look for uh, blessings that are meant for heaven and meant for the church's marriage to Christ in, in these earthly relationships, God, that we would give grace and love and show each other Christ and point each other to your power and your glory, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you, God, to be mindful of these things, God, and to live with open eyes, understanding your word and power, that we look for the answers to our questions and the fulfillment of your promises all around us, God, that we would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, and that you would do all those things to draw us closer to you for our good and your glory. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.